Through the lens of loving local and seeing global, we obsessively search for people whose stories need to be told and how OKC played a supporting role. Hosted by Katherine Bexton and Emmy Cobes, welcome to Action City. Emmy! Hey, Katherine. Hi. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. This Monday really started off right, I just want to say. It really did. Got up, I did my workout, I fixed my coffee machine. I'm like a professional melee coffee fixer now. You are so fixer. bougie. I can't even handle <laughs> the professional melee. I really, I would probably like sell some platelets if my coffee machine broke so I could buy a new one. It's insane. It makes me so happy. So I fixed the coffee machine. I I. Got my kids out the door. My kitchen's clean. I'm ready to go. I had the opposite morning. My alarm didn't go off. What? And I had to shower because I had a shower since Friday. Well, So yes, I was that'll... a little greasy. Um, so yeah, I was like, I was running into the shower and being like, Jeff, the kids are awake. And like, I need to blow dry my hair. And, you know, opposite. You, you're in a different stage. You have to actually get your kids dressed. Thank goodness my kids Wait, I have to get physically themselves. get them yes. out of their beds because Huffman's oh, still in a crib right. and I refuse to take him out until he has to come out. No, leave him in there. As long Every as day my mom's like, when are you going to get him a big boy bed? I'm like, whenever he figures out he can climb out of his crib. It is never, he is the biggest two-year-old. I mean, he's massive. He could easily swing a, sling a leg over and mm-hmm. just get out. Don't tell him that. I know. I'm not going to. Well, so what were your what were your pit and peaks of this last week? Uh, so I actually had kind of a week. Um, my pit was that we are postponing boots and ball gowns. Oh, I and know. I know I got the email. Uh, it just it was kind of my pit too. When I right, think about it. I still have the invitation sitting on my bathroom counter. I think that. And I, I, and the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I talked about it on here previously. And I, before this, I called Jillian and I was like, is it okay if I say something? But I think the pit is that we just, we had done this, you know, a survey. We had, we, we'd, there had been so much thought going into our May date. And we just missed the thing that's like Cox and these, some of our big sponsors that are companies. Their employees aren't back in their offices. I know, so because we ha- don't work for big companies, right? We and don't so we think don't, about that. I wasn't thinking about this. So to have them send their employees that, who aren't allowed to be in their corporate offices to an event of eight hundred people just it doesn't it doesn't align. And I think we could have easily had eight hundred people come to an event in May, but it wouldn't have aligned with some big partnerships we have. And I think that. At the end of the day, this is for the babies. It is for them. And I and, you know, everybody on the committee, everybody on the board, everybody at ICS, I think will agree that we have to make sure we are big cognizant of everybody and we have to make the best decision for everybody. It's and not. I know you guys are doing that. Everyone's doing that. Yeah. You guys are all. I think so. I think it was just one of those things where we thought we had put so much effort into making sure that those conversations were being had and those thoughts were being had. And I think we thought we were doing it. And then the fact that we didn't was kind of a big bummer because we thought we had, you know, it's like when you think you're like, I I thought of every scenario, I've thought of every person. And then you realize that you've left out this huge chunk. It just, it really stinks, but I know we're going to have it. I don't know exactly know when, and we're just going to figure it out. 
but so that was kind of and it'll be worth the wait it'll be definitely worth the wait and it and the wonderful thing is that I think that people have recognized that ICS has been a front line during this pandemic for people who need stuff I mean I think they said 40 percent of their clientele have lost their jobs in the pandemic I mean, it, it, and they are directly feeding families. And these and, are people that are already on the fringe, right? right? Even one day of not being able to go to work makes a huge difference. Huge difference. So I, they still have gotten tons of support during this time. And so that's another blessing is why we can postpone, I think. But I don't know. I was just, it was a bummer. It was sad to think that people thought we hadn't done our due diligence because in our minds we thought we had and so that was the only part that I was kind of bummed about because I don't want to offend anybody or I don't want people to think that we didn't try to think of everything and I know you can't think of everything and you can't do everything perfectly but we really tried and so um but I think it's okay I think you guys have now kind of heard from all sides even though you thought you had done that to to begin with and you're incorporating everybody's thoughts and it's I think that's been kind of the hardest part of this pandemic too it's like I have friends I haven't seen since June and it really sucks because everybody's level of comfortability is completely different different. and I would say I'm probably on the more like uh, I don't know I think I try to be careful but we still go to dinner Mm -hmm. um I mean we're not going to parties or bars but I don't know. It just sucks because I feel like during this time, it's been hard to gauge sort of everybody's comfortability on like and everybody's oh, different. Yes, and, and everybody's we have to be respectful of mm-hmm. sort of where everybody is on the yeah. Continuum. And I completely want to be respectful. I think as like a middle child Pisces, all I ever want to make do everybody is happy. make everybody feel comfortable, and I'm the, always the first to apologize, and I, I you know I always want to talk things out and resolve and all that stuff. So I think that yeah, but. um So, yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to postpone. We're going to do we want to make sure everybody's safe and healthy and all that good stuff. And we're going to do what we can. So and raise money for the baby and raise money. I mean, the number one thing is the babies. And so whatever if if we can still serve them and not have a massive party in June, like we're going to do it. So we're going to figure it out. You'll figure it out. What was your peak? Oh, my gosh. So my peak was. I just, so Huffman's two, I'm getting out my phone because I want to read you this text I got from his teacher and it made me cry. And I, obviously I think my child is wonderful, but just recently he's been very sweet. And so she sent me a picture of him getting his hair done by one of the little girls in his class. Because he has those curly locks. Uh-huh. And she goes, Huffman got his hair done today at school with like a, you know, a laughing emoji. And I, there's like a little picture. And I go, oh, I go, did he sit there for it? And she said, he sure did. He was so, so tolerant of her. Her other friends would not sit still. I go, that's so sweet. And then she goes, he's such a sweetie here with all of his friends. I go, that makes me so happy. And then she said this, you have a very sweet, smart boy, Emmy. And I just lost it. I was like, oh. And I know that's not. That's really what we want for them. Yes, to go I out in the world and to be, be kind. kind. To yeah. be kind. To be kind to other people. Mm-hmm. And I just like, oh my gosh, just lost it. So that was my oh. my definitely my peace. Totally worth it. All the right? hard work that you do is worth it. I just that's. I mean, as a parent, that's all you want, right? It's to make sure. And I think that since my kids are so young and they, you know, their personalities are just coming out to know that he's 
like that to other people when I'm not there and when Jeff isn't there. It's just that makes my heart just like, oh, yeah, explode. So I know. Are you crying? He always gives me a hug. He really is sweet. <laughs> I, I, I mean, not all kids are like that. Well, and so. I don't want to compare him to anybody else. I just I'm happy to know that when nobody's watching, that's who he is. Right. So that just made Aww. me so happy. I know. Bring him, bring him by later I this will. week so I can get a hug. I will, him. for sure. Well, okay, my yeah, pit your... peak. Well, I think my pit was, there's a lot going on at Greta right now. And it's, we're getting ready to go into the buying season for fall. Mm-hmm. So usually we go to New York about the second or third week in February. And usually I spend seven or eight nights in New York City. I spend all day, every day going to appointments, seeing collections, picking out my favorites, weeding out the things I don't like. And by the end of the trip, Angela and I narrow down what we think we really love. We have a chance to see everything at once. Yeah. And usually I feel pretty good about what we've seen by the end. Well, because you can touch it and feel it. You can touch it and feel it. And really, it is nice to touch and feel it. That is is a, a bonus. But what's really the important piece of it is that all I do for seven or eight days straight is focus on the buying piece of it. I'm not distracted by anything else. Mm-hmm. We don't eat lunch, which, as you guys know, is a big deal for me because I don't like to miss <laughs> a meal. And we don't eat lunch. We you know we start at 8.30 or 9 every day. We're there till 6 or 6.30. We never stop. And I think we make really great decisions along the way but what happens now is it's all zoom calls and so it might be tuesday at four i have a zoom call and then thursday at nine and then yeah you're not Monday dedicating whatever. that time. i've not dedicated that time I have, i'm distracted while i'm doing it people are coming in and out of the store and buying the right mix of products is what makes the store interesting mm-hmm. and i think i really have to focus on finding those new collections and those new designers and those new brands that make Greta a place of discovery. Which, and you've done that so well in the past. I mean, it's, and it's just harder. It gets yeah. harder when you're not doing it in person to find those new brands. Right. You're really not happens, at market right. and you happen to see their booth or somebody in the showroom is like, oh, wait, you like this and so let me show you. Yeah, exactly. Or you should go see my friend around the corner uh-huh. or whatever. I'll call them. That yeah. just doesn't happen. And so I'm, I'm worried and I'm, I've got it. We're launching our, our new website tomorrow. And oh, that's exciting. Tomorrow. Oh, God. I'm getting hives. I think we're launching it tomorrow. And so that's taken up a lot of my time. So now I really have to shift my focus to the buying season. And so I'm just a little worried. I'm stressed. I feel like that you've it. done such a good job with trunk shows and things like that. You've been able to bring new merchandise mm-hmm. in. But people aren't traveling as much. So yeah, the trunk shows true. maybe oh, has to be without true. the designer. So yeah. I want to keep it interesting and fresh and fun and where you know you can get sort of some try to true staples, but that you're going to find something new that you haven't seen before. So I'm going to be dedicated to that over the next few weeks. Yeah, I, I think that's a good Good thing to so my my peak, well, back to Infant Crisis Services, my peak was that they've sort of opened up. The, the volunteers cannot come at the level that they had been coming in the past. And there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. We repack every single diaper. We put stickers on all the formula. We repack, we pack the toddler packs. I mean, there's a lot of manual labor to be done. And it's something like nine full-time employees are what the volunteers provide every single year. Wow. And so... 
to the board. I sit on the board and they opened up the opportunity to come on a Sunday. They come and they open the somebody comes and opens the door for you, shows you what to do and then leaves you there and you spend however much time you want doing whatever job they've given you. So we went with Neely and Jim and Gracie and then we brought our friends, the Cranes with us and there were eight of us and we packed toddler packs for two hours. Wow. It was it, it was so rewarding. It was cathartic. It was such a nice time with family. We had the music going. It's like a little challenge to sort of figure out the assembly line and what's the best way to work and who should be doing what job. And they had kind of the racks lined up on the side. And Allison was like, okay, I don't expect you to get to the end of these racks, but just do as much as you can. And you know me. I mean, I saw the end of that yeah, rack. And, and I was like, like I'm doing it. how many bags have to fit on those racks? I'm like trying to do the math in my head. I had to get the calculator out. So eventually I realized we needed 288 bags. We counted out all the bags and we got all the way to the end of the racks. Wow. And everybody felt like we had accomplished something. And and let me tell you, 288 toddler packs will last for two and a half days. Oh my gosh. That's it. That's it. And that's not including all the infant packs that they that they give out every single day. So we worked for two hours, eight of us, and only packed enough toddler packs for two and a half days. But, oh my gosh. I mean, everyone was standing around. Th- so we're coming. We want to go again before spring break. It was great. And then we all went for lunch afterwards. Wait, it was call just us. Nice, we want to come. I'll call you guys. You guys, yeah. would, you would love it. And I mean, it would, Huffman might be a little small for it. But well, we can get our parents. We can get or, some, yeah. we can get some babysitters. But it was just a nice small group. Everybody, we wore our masks. Yeah. We were the only people in the building. And it was such a nice family day. And to have the kids there, I mean, they were kind of in and out and in and out, but for the most part, they really participated. That's and amazing. It was great. So it was a nice Sunday. Aww. And now I'm so excited. Wait, you guys. I am so excited. We're so excited for our guests. Okay. I, I can't. I don't she think was on I've, our like original list. I don't think I've fangirled. Okay. So our producer, Richard, makes fun of me because I fangirl for a lot of our guests. <laughs> I think she was my worst one by far. She is pretty amazing. And I had heard about her for years before I ever met her, and she was on our original list of people we wanted to interview for yes. this podcast. So we're going to welcome Nikeo Grico to the podcast today. She's a first-generation American whose parents came to the United States from Kenya to teach at university. Her family moved to Norman when she was in the seventh grade when her father started the African Studies program at OU. Little did she know that she would become a Sooner through and through. Kao, as her friends call her, moved to L.A. after college and combined her love for her Kenyan grandmother's beauty secrets and her entrepreneurial spirit to create Nikeo Beauty. And after 18 years in the beauty industry, by the way, they carry Nikeo at Target, she is a leader in the she's a leader in the industry and she's co-founded 13 Loon, an e-commerce destination designated to inspire the discovery of beauty brands created by black and brown founders that resonate with people of all colors. So we're so excited to welcome Nikeo to Action City. Emmy, I know in the show, we talk a lot about all the places we love to go in Oklahoma City, all the shops, all the restaurants, the parks. One of the things that you have to have in order for those places to be able to operate their businesses is it's all commercial real estate. It's it's buildings and standalone locations that are owned by landlords that need to get those place, places rented out. May, mind you, some people may own their own buildings, but some people need to buy and sell those buildings. Some people need to rent them. But how do you figure out what the best location is for you? When I bought Greta Sloan, all these people kept telling me I needed to move and I needed to get a different space. But there was something I really loved about Nicholas Hills Plaza. 
So what I did when I bought Greta was I sort of listened to those people in that I thought I should look around and see what other spaces are available in the market. And so I called my friend Barry Murphy, whom I've known since college. He married my very best friend from growing up. And so I've known him since I was 18 years old. So he was the first person that I called. He's in the commercial real estate business in Oklahoma City. He has been doing this, oh God, at least 15 years. He's an expert. He does office. He does retail. He does industrial. I called Barry. Barry took me to all the spots where I could possibly take Greta. And guess what he helped me figure out? He helped me figure out that Nicholas's Plaza was the best place for it. And I kept it there. So he didn't feel like he needed to put me into a building just to put me into a building. He really helped me answer the hard question of my business of where was the best location. And then from there, my husband is a lawyer and he has his own law practice and he likes to move around a lot as well. And so, of course, he calls Barry to help him with his office needs. And the most recent building that he's in, my husband is now in this building called the Barry Law Building, or the I think that's called the Barry Law Building, actually, down on like 19th and Classen. And Barry Murphy helped him find that building as well. He helped him negotiate the contract. And he, my husband loves this building. It's perfect for him. It's historical. He feels like right at home there. And so I just, I can't say enough great things about Barry Murphy. He works for Cushman Wakefield. I think if anybody's looking for somebody to help them with their commercial real estate needs, I think you should definitely reach out to Barry. His phone number, you can reach him on his cell, 405-297-9913. Or you can reach him on his website, www.barrymurphy.net. So I highly recommend him. So Barry, thanks so much for sponsoring our podcast. We love you. Welcome to Action City. Emmy and I are here today with Nikeo Greco, the founder of Nikeo, a cosmetics line that she has had for many years that is, we're going to hear the story about how she founded it, but we're going to talk to her. She grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, and but now she lives in LA. And so this is our first person to interview who doesn't actually live in Oklahoma City, but we know how much she loves her hometown and where she came from. And so we're dying to hear her story about growing up here and about going out into the world and conquering lots of different things that uh, we have enjoyed watching along the way. And we know you have a new venture as well, 13 Loon. So we're excited to hear about that too. So welcome to Action City. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's like coming home. Uh, Well, I'm like kind of a fangirl. And when I say kind of, I'm totally a fangirl (laughs) in a lot of different ways. But I'm just excited that you're here because I feel like living in LA and kind of coming from here. I mean, I think that one thing Catherine and I have in common is that we always felt like we would move away. And then sometimes somehow we found ourselves back in this place. Right back at home. Um, But so with all of our guests, we really do start at the very beginning. So were you born in Norman? No, I was actually born in New York. Um, I moved to Norman when I was almost nine years old from New Jersey. Um, My dad started the African Studies program at OU. So that's what took us from the East Coast to Norman. And I, you know, the, the, the things I do know about you, this like your family history seems super important, super, Mm -hmm. your roots 
and like deep in your soul, it seems like this is kind of, and now with your businesses, it is totally shown through. So like mm-hmm. briefly, can you kind of tell us about your parents and are both parents professors? Um, yes. Yeah, so my dad um, was started the African studies program and was an African studies professor at OU. And my mom um, now lives in Illinois, but she's a dean. So yes, both my parents in education. Um, and I'm a first generation American of Kenyan descent. Um, they both were born in Kenya, came to the United States to go to school. So they actually met here in the States. Um, got married and then decided to raise us in Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, you know, my my heritage and has always been, I'd say, the driving force in my business. Um, I went to Kenya when I was eight for the very first time as a little girl. And that's when I got to meet my grandmother, Nikeo, um, who I'm named after for the first time. And she taught me my first beauty secrets using Kenyan coffee and sugar cane that she grew on her farm. And my grandfather, who passed away before I got the chance to know him, was a medicine man. So he had the ability to kind of go out in nature and extract oils to treat the skin and hair and ailments. And um, so I sort of grew up with all of these rituals, even though it was in Oklahoma, uh, my mom would still use these rituals on my on my skin, on my hair. And, you know, just kind of using these um, natural remedies um, to treat the skin and ailments my whole life. So it's kind of all I knew was. I mean, now we call it clean beauty. Um, at the time it was, you know, referred to in my home as using things that come from the earth um, to treat ourselves and the most natural the pos- as possible and not with chemicals and, you know, kind of all of those buzzwords were the buzzwords I had as a child. And, and I always found it really fascinating, but more importantly, um, you know, because I was in Oklahoma and, and so many people that I grew up with, you know, their grandparents lived behind them or down the street or across the golf course. And and my, you know, family, most of them lived across the world. So it was a way that I could feel kind of deeply connected um, to that experience because we didn't get to physically be together often. I kind of looked to these teachings as a way to really stay connected to where I came from. Did you did you like to share all this with your friends? I mean, I know you're such a social person and you always have a million people around you that that love you and are fascinated by what you have to say. Did you have them all over and teach them how to do this? I mean, you know, it's so interesting. It's such a great question. And it's something I talk to my own kids about, you know, when you're at least in my experience, when I was little, you know, first of all, I was this kid that was, you know, of Kenyan descent that moved from New York and New Jersey so I was already a little bit of a fish out of water when I landed at Monroe Elementary in Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> I can see that. Um, and so I spent probably the greater part of my elementary school life just trying to not be different in any way, shape, or form, right? So I didn't necessarily speak to those experiences as much as I encourage. And I'm so excited that my kids are, I feel like this generation is yes, so different. different. Like generation. they want to celebrate their differences all the time. And and when I was a little girl, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um But, you know, my friends would spend the night and they would see like my mom, like put oil in my hair and they would be like, what is that? What are you doing? And, you know, what, what, you know, what is that for? And, and so in those moments where I kind of felt safe in my own environment, I was excited to share it. Um, 
But my love of beauty, definitely. I mean, I started making nail polishes when I was in like third or fourth grade and tried to like, I begged for this nail polish making kit so I could make like glitter nail polish. I say I was like the OG hard candy. (laughs) Oh Um, my gosh. And I started making like nail polishes and lip glosses and for like a hot minute tried to like hawk them around the neighborhood. And so I think my beauty entrepreneurial self was always kind of inside of me. And my friends got to experience that and like my love of like doing makeup and, and that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, that part of me, I really shared, but when it came to, you know, my heritage, I think that it really took until my, you know, really teen years getting actually when I got to OU that I really started to, to come to terms with my own self-love, right. And, um, and experiencing, um, real pride in, in my, in my heritage. And, and then also, you know, once I left and, and came to LA. So what was high school like? Like, what were your interests other than beauty? Kind of like what, if you had to like sort of stereotype yourself in a sense, like what, what type of kid Mm. were you? My gosh, I was such a Norman girl, you know, all about like, (laughs) like leadership. I went to basic, I went to advance all the leadership camps. I was um, vice president of the student body my junior year. I was president of the student body my senior year. I was like, so active and young life and Canacuck, like all the Oklahoma things. Um, I loved community. I, I just loved being with my friends. I loved adventures. I loved going to camp, you know? Um, and it, the great thing about growing up in, in Norman, and we had, you know, a few friends who we'd grown up with that maybe went to Oklahoma city for private school, but even just being, in that community of Norman, it was like forever family. I mean, I'm still so close to so many kids, not only from my own class, but the class above me, the class below me, um, that it really was such a special place to grow up where you cultivated like lifelong, it's, it's family, you know, friendships and, and, you know, regardless of our differences, like there's just that connectivity to being like a Norman tiger. And, you know, when I, went to school back in the dark ages in high school, there was only one high school in Norman. So that was it. You got to your, you know, and it was only a two year high school at that, you know, it was just junior and senior year. And so there really was, even though it was a big high school because every 16 to 18 year old went to the same school um, in the town, it really formed, you know, just this really tight bond. So I loved it. it. I loved growing up Did it feel like a college town? I've always wondered whether or not Norman felt a little more sophisticated and worldly than maybe Oklahoma mm-hmm. City did because people like your parents, professors came from all over the world and there was this right. sort of intellectual stimulation going on all the time. Was that the case mm-hmm. or were most of your friends born and bred in Norman? Yeah. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest questions I get asked in, in Los Angeles is like, what was it like to be a black girl growing up in, in Oklahoma? You know, it's people have this their ideas about um that part of the country and, and that experience. And to your point, yeah, I mean, it was this kind of worldly, amazing experience, you know, even in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Norman, um, there were people from all walks of life, all religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, you know, a lot of diversity. And so I really experienced it being a place that was great at like, cultivating really interesting people. And that was what I saw Norman as. And, and, you know, it was a college town. Obviously my dad was 
uh, you know, working for the university, we were very involved with the university, but it really felt separate um, that there was this Norman experience and that there was this OU experience. And even though against my parents' wishes, I decided to go to OU I was and that. not How leave. How did you decide? Uh, yeah, what was, were your choices? Well, what, where were you looking? Yeah. Where did they so want my you parents, to go? You know, yeah, my parents both went to school on the East Coast. My dad went to Amherst and my mom graduated from Syracuse. And, you know, even though they were so happy to to raise us in Oklahoma and it really was a nice life, um, they really wanted us to to kind of, you know, expand our horizons and, and felt college was the best opportunity to do it. So when I started going through that process, my, you know, junior year visiting colleges, um, most of the schools I was interested in were on the East Coast and and really applied. I applied to all of them and wasn't even considering applying to OU and then um, decided on Syracuse would be where I was going to go. Um, I had been accepted, got a scholarship. And then I think in the last semester of high school, like right before the deadline, I was like, you know, maybe I'll apply to OU just to make sure, you know, just in case um, I changed my mind. And my parents were like, why are you doing that? You're not going to go to OU. And I'm like, you know, just in case. And then and then that summer, you know, as I was prepping to I got accepted to OU and and I even like kind of on the sly, like put all my information in for Rush um, just in case case I decided to stay. And um, and that summer, I just started to panic. I wasn't ready to, to leave. And I had quite a few friends that were staying and going to OU. And I was the only person I knew going to Syracuse. And I kept trying to talk to my parents about it. And they were like, no, you're, you're going, this is the decision you've made a commitment. And, and then I really freaked out. Like, and I'd say in July of that summer, I was like, I, I can't do it. I just want to stay at OU for one semester. And then I promise in January, I'll, I'll transfer. But can I please defer my enrollment? And so they agreed. And so we contacted Syracuse. I told OU I was going to go to OU. And I decided to go through Rush. And and then once I was in, I was in. I was like, I'm not going anywhere. No, this you is, loved it. I mean, every, this when is I, where I was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up staying and I'm, I'm so grateful that I did. I mean, to this day, you know, some the women and, and men that I met in that college experience and, and OU felt very different than Norman. Like I cried on the first day of college, like everybody else. I cried when my mom dropped me off at the dorms. I mean, it was, a, you know, it, it was this sort of rite of passage in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think would happen going to school in your own hometown, but it really was a dramatically different experience for me and in good and bad ways. Yeah, I was going to ask you kind of what would what would be the positives and negatives of that? Yeah, so, you know, when I um, decided to go to OU, um, you know, I moved into the dorms, um, I started going through Rush, and, and when I had signed up to go through Rush, I wasn't thinking about, you know, should I go through all Black Rush? Should I go through traditional, you know, Rush? I just signed up to go through Rush like the rest of my friends from high school. And the girls that I knew from my high school that were older than me were in houses that were more traditionally white houses. And I really, you know, and call it the naivete of being an 18 year old. I just, I wasn't thinking about it because that wasn't my experience growing up in Norman. You know, it was, we all hung out black, white, Asian, brown, all of us were friends. And so, you know, when I got to OU, it was sort of the first time that I, was experiencing, um, I would, I wouldn't call it, um, direct racism, but definitely 
um, an insensitivity to to my race. Um, got asked a lot of questions about why I was going through this rush. There was all this attention being paid to me. Um, the college paper was calling, trying to interview me. And, and I found it so odd that here I was, you know, five minutes away from the house I grew up in and having this entirely different experience and being seen in a way that had never really been, you know, of course there had been the acknowledgement that yes, I was proud of the skin I was born into. I was proud of my heritage. I loved being a black young woman, but it had never been directed at me that I had been, that I potentially could be doing something wrong from both sides. And, and so I went through the experience I had a great rush. I ended up, um, and at the time, they used to have a day. I don't know if the Panhellenic Society still does this, but you would go through rush and you would go to all of the larger chapters. And then there would be one day that everybody went to a room and you kind of went and met with all the different Black sororities, um, predominantly Black sororities, for a day. And um and I remember that day being really, really difficult for me in the way that I felt I didn't know where I belonged. And I felt that I was disappointing people on both sides. And it and it felt like such a heavy thing as an 18-year-old to experience because all I was trying to do was find my new college community and and have an experience that I had looked up to and friends that were older than me that had had. And so that was a really rough entry into into school. There had been a young man that was older in one of the fraternities that had yelled out a racial slur to me when I was walking to one of the houses. An article came out about me being, you know, the first black, you know, girl to pledge Kappa Kappa Gamma at this chapter. And then all the attention that came with that. And it was, it was a lot. It was, you know, I was 18. I didn't want all of this attention. I wanted to to just go have a college experience. Um, That is heavy. Do you think it would have been different at Syracuse? I mean, looking back on it. I I mean, I, I I do, I do only because now Ironically, I've met people in LA who went to Syracuse that are my friends that I would have gone to college with. with, Yeah, that's so funny. And I've asked them, you know, like, were there people of color? And and they're like, yeah, there was lots. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing. You know, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, I think that racism exists everywhere. I don't think it's about the zip code, but I do think that maybe for that specific experience, it would have been different. But here's what was great is that the people that I, you know, met in Russia and, and the houses that I loved and the chapter that I ultimately pledged became my family. And, and that was a non-issue. And so I do think that it, you know, as an entrance into college, it made me a little tougher, but that's not a bad thing. You know, I'm, I'm excited that I got to now, when I look back in retrospect, to be the first in my chapter because it meant that I wouldn't be the last. Yeah, right. that's true. Actually, right. so I was a Kappa as well um, mm. at TCU. And I remember seeing you on the cover of The Key, which is our Kappa like publication. I don't know how often it comes out, but I was like, oh, that's Nikeo. I was like, I had no idea yeah. she was a Kappa. I mean, who knew? My first cover girl. Um, <laughs> was that your first cover? I that love was my it. first cover. It was beautiful. I mean, I couldn't be, and I was so happy because the cover right before me was Meghan Markle. So That's I was I, like, wow. Yeah. Well, Are you I, serious? Yeah. She so was everybody was paying attention yeah. to see who the next one was going to be. And you still <laughs> yeah. frequently go back to OU and go back to specifically the Kappa House and talk to the girls there about 
life and about your business and about your experience. I do. I do. I mean, you know, it really is, um, you know, that CAP experience shaped me in so many ways. Um, some of my dearest friends, my children's godmother who moved out to LA to be with me. Um, I met in the CAPA house. Um, some of my very, very best friends um, to this day are girls that I lived with or were friends with in the Kappa house. And so, you know, I feel that I was given this valuable experience and and I want to be able to, you know, hopefully, hopefully inspire that next generation of maybe future entrepreneurs or girls who want to leave the nest and move to LA to show them that they can do it too. And then, you know, I love going back to OU period. It's, you know, since my, my dad passed away in 2013. And so, when I get to go back, um, I feel very, very connected to to my dad. And so I love being on campus and and also going back and teaching in the business school, which, you know, really also helped to shape who I am and, and the choices that I've made in a career. And so I go back and and teach at, at Christ College, guest teach, and then actually gave my first commencement speech at graduation, um, the December graduation a year ago, which was an incredible experience. Uh, which like that couldn't have come that would have been the best commencement to I know. do that was probably considering the last everything time you that's happened right. over the last, the last time you were here yeah wait yeah. that's incredible yeah. so you know you go through OU you it sounds like it was a positive experience in a lot of ways it was yeah so what was your major yeah, really what, quickly what was your you major business yes I was business but I didn't become a business major until I was a junior so I actually went to OU for five years I started as a letters major because my intention was to take these classic classes and and then become a lawyer um, and then at the end of my sophomore year I decided I didn't want to be <laughs> an attorney <laughs> smart. and I was really interested in business and so I went an extra well for two reasons one I changed my major so I needed to catch up on courses and two I didn't believe in summer school so I ended up um, going to OU for five years which which I also really appreciated you know having that time on campus um, and then having that I, I called it like my gap year because I didn't have to take that many hours my my fifth year to live in an apartment and feel like a grown-up before I actually like went into the world. Um, so I graduated in 96, even though I was meant to graduate in 95. So what was your first job into the world after you graduated? So as soon as I graduated, I moved to LA and I started working at Creative Artists Agency, which is a large talent agency here in LA. And um, they're actually global now, but um, I worked at the LA office in Beverly Hills and worked in their television department. How did you get that job? Yeah, and well, how yeah. after all that did you say I'm moving to LA? Like what you just threw yeah. a dart at the map? I mean, it how was, did you I came out to LA on spring break my senior year and fell in love with it. I was like, wait, you can live in a place like this with the beach and the palm trees and all the excitement and the Rodeo Drive. And I mean, fell in love hard. I'd been to California as a little girl, but hadn't experienced it in that way until college. And so I, while I was here, I was very interested in sports actually, and, and thought maybe I would move into potentially becoming a sports agent. And I was doing an internship with ESPN when I was at OU. And I was also working for Kelvin Sampson and the men's basketball team. And so that was really my focus, um, was trying to find a job in sports. And ironically, when I was flying back to Oklahoma after spring break, I met a man at the airport and he, my flight was delayed and we started chatting and he was like, oh, I'm a sports agent. You should just move here and work for me. And at the time I was, you know, 
looking at jobs and, you know, the jobs that everybody in business school does, like, you know, Eli Lilly and Ford Motor Credit and, you know, Ernst and Young and, (laughs) you know, interviewing for all these jobs. And they were such great opportunities, but none of them were like really exciting to me. And most of my friends were moving to Dallas and I didn't want to move to Dallas like everybody else. Um, And so I came home and I told my dad, I was like, I met this guy at the airport and he's a sports agent. So I'm going to turn down all those other jobs in Dallas and I'm going to move to LA and work for him. And my dad's like, was your dad you know, like I don't think so. No way. <laughs> yeah. He was like, uh, that's not no. happening. Yeah. And I was like, this is it. You know, I am now 20, almost 23 years old. You can't really tell me what to do. This is the route I'm going to take. It's not a lot of money, but you know, this is what I want to do. And so while my parents weren't thrilled about it, um, they couldn't stop me. And, and so I, got a little mini U-Haul, got a friend of mine to drive it and got jumped in my Camry and drove out to LA and called the guy when I got here to say, I'm ready to start working. And it didn't turn out to be exactly as I had hoped. And I never worked for him, but then I knew I was coming back to Oklahoma city in like three or four weeks for my friend's wedding. And I was like, I can't go back and not have a job. I mean, I had a going away party. I turned down all these jobs. Like I've got like five minutes to find myself a new career. And so I didn't know anybody, but I make friends pretty easily. And I made friends with this girl that had also worked for the would-be sports agent guy who had since left the job. And so she was telling me about all the different ways and entrances into different agencies and, you know, maybe you could work at one of the big talent agencies and then that could help lead you to a sports job. And, and so, yeah, I just applied at all of them and CAA was the one that called and gave me an interview first and they needed someone to start right away. And it was just kind of one of those kismet moments. And I thought like, Oh, I'm going to be an agent's assistant. I'm going to, you know, really use my degree and my business, you know, acumen to, help these celebrities get to the next level. And it was definitely not that it was, as you would expect a complete admin, you know, almost like a grad school experience, uh, answering phones and going to the mailroom and, and humbling. But luckily I had one of those bosses who really took me under her wing and, and was a real mentor, which I've been lucky to find in my journey and, and really helped me to, to get to, a place where I could really understand the business and grow and into the industry in a way that was meaningful to me. So during this time, are you still like making your skincare in your home or like, what were you kind of like, what was your um, relationship with skincare at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, I was always a skincare junkie. Like I spent all my pennies on anything beauty, um, loved on the weekends, you know, my office was close to Barney's New York to go there and peruse the beauty department and Fred Siegel and all these amazing um, boutiques that, you know, that was really the time for indie beauty here in Los Angeles. And I literally would spend all my money on skincare, on beauty products and, and, you know, really kind of discovering brands and then, you know, still working in the industry. I, I went from the agency to a management company. I went and worked on the studio side at Universal for a while. And my last job in the business was working at a place called Three Arts Entertainment. And my real love was working directly with the actresses. But what I found is that I really loved the fashion and beauty aspect of Hollywood more than reading scripts and finding actors jobs. And so Whenever there were shoots or beauty deals to be done, I was always the first to volunteer. I wanted to work directly with booking hair and makeup and being in the trailers with them. And 
And I very quickly realized that um, the continent of Africa was very underrepresented in premium beauty, especially. Um, we would have so many products coming across our desk because we had all of these celebrities at the agency that I was working at. And a lot of times, you know, I was getting to take some of these samples home and try them, you know, before passing them on to the clients. And you would see all these beautiful formulations from Europe, from, you know, all these different cultures being represented. And, and I would constantly be commenting about the fact that like, it's so crazy that there's not some premium beauty brand that's talking about the sophistication and beauty of Africa, because that's what I knew from my visits there. And, and when you would see Africa represented, it would be like in a kitschy way with like a zebra or giraffe on it. I'm like, giraffes don't roam down the street of Nairobi. Like this is not (laughs) what Africa is. And so I decided at 27 that you know, I wanted to explore being able to make my grandmother's coffee scrub and my grandfather's oils and and turn it into a job. So I quit my job and started making coffee scrub. You quit your job before you started making the coffee scrub. Mm-hmm. What did you? Yeah, I mean, I was I was that? making it at home. <laughs> you were doing, not selling. Were you giving it, it to your friends and it. seeing how they liked it? And mm-hmm. yeah, and um, and then, but yeah, I quit my job and then gave myself a time frame in order to write a business plan, get funding and find a manufacturer and get to shelf in a certain amount of time. And if I was able to do it, that would be my job. And if not, then I would go back and, and find another job in the industry. And, and I was able to, to hit my goals. So you do have like kind of an insane celeb following. Like I've noticed like <laughs> who likes your products, who I see you with all this stuff. So did that so did you know those actresses through that old management job and then they kind of, you gave them your beauty through your like personal relationship? Like how did, sorry, that, that question's mm-hmm. kind of shallow, but I am like sort of oh, a no, celebrity no, no. junkie. She, she loves celebrities. I love just, well, and I love to, yeah. I don't know, but like, so is that how those relationships started is? Yeah, some of them. I mean, you know, it's funny because Los Angeles is the biggest city in the United States, but it really is like a small town. Yeah. Right. And, and it, people, it's such a place for dreamers. And that's kind of like the like level setting commonality between all of us. Right. So whether you are a dreamer that's pursuing being in front of the camera, behind the camera, having nothing to do with the camera, being in beauty, being in fashion, in some ways, like <clears throat> you just organically find one another. So, Yes, to answer your question, a couple of the celebrities who have long been supporters of myself, my journey, my products, were people that I actually knew or had met when I was working in the industry. And then some of them are people I met because our kids went to preschool together and we became mom friends. Um, Some are friends from my neighborhood. Some are friends that I met because we had a lot of different friends in common. Some I met through the beauty industry. So even though they were actors, they, you know, have, we have, our relationship has formed because we worked in the beauty industry, like Gwyneth, you know, so it's, it's really, I would say it's all been very organic. Um, and, and the, the world just gets smaller and smaller, the older you get. And so, yeah, I think that and it's and it's interesting because you know before i moved to la like celebrity to me were pro basketball players and football players like i wasn't allowed to watch a lot of tv um when i was growing up and so um you know we could watch like 20 to 30 minutes a day usually it entailed watching the news with my family 
and then sometimes on the weekends. So I didn't, I didn't, I was a fan of like some old 80s sitcoms, but I didn't know a lot of actors and actresses, like who they were when I moved here. And so that's also been a really interesting um, experience for me is that I've organically become friends with people and not even know who they that were. They were, they were famous. They yeah, were. that's amazing. Right, right? And so... Well, and that's probably... Yeah, that probably actually yeah. lends itself to be probably a good thing when you're meeting them because you're not being a fangirl. You're just like having right. a normal conversation and treating them totally. like a normal it, person, it, which it they might are. have a harder time. I I mean, I lived in LA, LA briefly and I would get starstruck like all the time. Anytime I yeah, saw Yeah, I mean, there are people that I get starstruck by, but it'll be like, you know, like I get starstruck. Like I saw Michael Jordan at a restaurant one time and I almost passed out, right? Like, and it's not even just about sports because I don't even watch sports as much as I used to when I was younger, but it'll be, you know, there's certain people that, yeah, like I'll just, flip out when I see them and <laughs> quite often it's like somebody from the bachelor which is a whole other story oh, but um, but yeah I wait but speaking recognize- can I just say this really quickly though you kind of look like big rage is that oh wait is that Rachel yes that was on Sorry, oh. sorry. Bachelor Nation calls her Big Rage, so that's a, I have to take it there. I but. don't know that. I, I I don't get to participate as much in the Bachelor Nation of it all. Oh, okay. um, what but, is Bachelor Nation? You guys are like talking before. I know, <laughs> I know. It's so it's so it's pretty we'll shallow, but it's is, fine. It's great. <laughs> this is craziness. Well, how oh my god, you... I love her. She's gorgeous. So I, thank you. I'll take that. I'm going to look her up on the internet. No, they. I think you guys yeah. look she's similar. Beautiful. For sure, she's beautiful. Aww. But so yeah, okay, so at 27, you're you've created this timeline for yourself. You find the manufacturer you do all this stuff so kind of mm-hmm. what is the growth like of of the beauty brand like and do you say right. a beauty brand how do you categorize Nikea? yeah i'd say beauty brand skincare brand skincare okay. um, how did you um, wait really so, quickly how'd you decide to call it Nikeo? i mean i tried I mean, not to i really not did to, i tried just... not to i wanted to name it nine million other things and everybody i would talk to would be like why would you not name it Nikeo? and i'm like because my whole life Everybody has mispronounced my name, misspelled my name. I love my name. I, I go by KO. My friends call me KO. But I just, I don't want to name it Nikeo. It's I, it's too much. And people were like, but you have to. Like the recipes are your grandmother's recipes. Her name's Nikeo. Nikeo means a hardworking woman in the sunshine. Like you have to name it Nikeo. And so, so that was really, I was like, it was, I was pressured into naming it Nikeo. But now I'm so grateful You're glad that I did. that. that- um, but yeah, so, so I left my job. I knew that I wanted the brand to launch at Fred Siegel, uh, Ron Robinson, Fred Siegel here in Los Angeles, which was like the, the place to launch brands, um, especially in beauty back in the day. And, um, I found a manufacturer. I did not have my own lucrative income to, uh, bootleg this bootstrap, this, um, endeavor. So I, used an old business plan that I had from OU that I had kept in a box full of old papers that I thought might be valuable one day. And I wrote a business plan. I very quickly learned that as a young 27-year-old first-time entrepreneur that's female and Black, it was going to be quite impossible for me to get private equity money or VC money. And so I ended up going the friends and family route. And actually, my first investors were people from Oklahoma. Um, and I believe so, it. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. So my first investors were people from Oklahoma, not in the beauty industry, more in oil and gas, but they were like, sure, we believe in you. And you did some great things when you're here in Oklahoma, we'll support you. And so I got a little bit of capital so that I could take the product to market. I launched it out of my apartment. This is before I was married with kids. And so I always tell young entrepreneurs, like, 
it's the best time to be the most selfish in your life. And before you have anybody to answer to, but yourself, like go for it then, because it just makes it so much easier. It's so much harder to pivot once you have other responsibilities. I agree. Um, And so I, yeah, I was shipping, receiving customer service, teaching myself how to be an entrepreneur, really learning the ins and outs of the beauty industry, how to model a business, how to hit your cost of goods, all the things. Um, and yeah, I got it launched at, at Fred Siegel. And this was, you know, early 2002, um, at a time when if you had an LA retailer, great, but if you weren't, didn't have a New York visibility, you weren't necessarily taken seriously in the press. So I flew to New York. I met with my favorite boutique there, which is Jeffrey, New York, which wasn't traditionally known for beauty, but they loved that I was at Fred Siegel. And so they launched it there. And then I kind of filled in the rest of the country by cold calling myself. I called Stanley Korshak in 4510 and I found the boutique in every city and filled in the country to about 180 boutiques by myself the first year. And then I learned very quickly, which most entrepreneurs do, that you can't do it all (laughs) and you're not supposed to be great at everything. And so I went back to um, my investors and said, I need help. I need PR. I need a sales force. Um, the brand was getting a lot of visibility and this is before the time of influencers. It was before social media. So a lot of these actors that I had worked with or people who I had met in the past that knew the brand, um, would organically and authentically speak about it in the media. And so so that really helped to give it visibility and, and then it made it on the Ellen DeGeneres Christmas list. And then Oprah, somebody brought it on the Oprah show was one of their favorite things to share with Oprah and. And so the business grew and grew and grew, but very sadly, as a lot of entrepreneurs also experienced, the business got bigger than I could keep up with. And in order to not lose the business forever, I knew I was going to have to make the difficult decision of of shutting down and, and going and starting again and raising again to find strategic partners who could actually really help to level the business to the next or take the business to the next level. And so in 2008, that's what I did. And by that point, I was married. I did have a child. And so the stakes were higher. And I knew that I was going to have to work quickly in order to get back to work. And, you know, in the downtime, I also used a lot of the experiences that I had learned to help people not make some of the same mistakes that I did. And, and so I would consult for people starting t-shirt lines and candle lines and things and kind of teach them how from an indie perspective to scale the business while I also in tandem was looking for new strategic partners. Um, And then in 2009, I signed with a company called Gerwich Products, who were the makers and creators of Laura Mercier, and Nikeo joined their umbrella. And so that's when I started my life of living in New York or living in LA, but working in New York um, in 2009 and going back and forth. Um, And under the Gerwich umbrella, because that was also a really hard time for the economy. Took a while to get the brand to market. We finally were able to take it to market in 2013. And I had spent those really greater part of those three or four years going to what I really call beauty grad school, which was being able to develop in labs that I could only dream about before going to fragrance school at Givaudan in New York, really learning the ins and outs of the business, both on the business side and on the creative and um, formulation side. 
And then when I finally got to go back into the market, I had this like wealth of knowledge um, that I had experienced being under this larger umbrella. And I sold on HSN. So that was my entry into learning how to sell products on television. How was, and how I was selling on HSN? I, I've, I I've mean, heard different terrifying reports. at first. Um, terrifying. Um, I, I could have never imagined how difficult. I have a whole new respect for um, people who work in the online shopping world, um, television world. Um, but but you get your groove and you learn. I mean, I've learned some of the greatest talents that have nothing to do with beauty from my time on HSN, like how to wear an airpiece. I, I think it makes you like the chronic best listener, like wearing an airpiece where a producer is speaking to you while you're having a conversation with a host, while you're looking at six different cameras so that you know which shot to where to pick it up and show the product and blah, blah, blah. So I, my, husband and I would joke that like I became like the nosiest person ever because we would go to a restaurant and I could tell you what the table four tables away was talking (laughs) about while I'm still having a conversation with my husband right in front of me oh my gosh I want that superpower I know it is kind of especially in LA you can learn a lot of yeah yeah, it's really good with teenagers (laughs) what's the (laughs) along the way not from a negative standpoint except for what's really the biggest mistake that you made but that mm. then taught you the most about moving forward. Because I think you, you know, you said you are, teach other entrepreneurs how maybe not to make mm-hmm. the same mistakes that you made. But sometimes I think the mistakes that we made are what give us the skills that we need to grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it kind of takes us back to the earliest part of our conversation about self-worth and self-love, you know, growing up and and, you know, having that um, prioritizing that right. in in, in your business decisions. And so I think some of my greatest mistakes were going into certain agreements, um, in my business life where I didn't value my own worth in the business. And then trying to back into that is, is virtually impossible. Trying to prove it after you've already gotten there, as opposed to exactly, exactly. And, uh, I would say that's one. And then also, you know, going so hard on yourself, you know, things that I look back at now as what I thought at the time were personal failures were really just opportunities. And I know I've said this to you before, Catherine, yeah. that, you know, when your kids fall off their bikes, when they're learning to ride a bike, you don't look at them when they fall down and say, get up, you failure. You know, the only failure is to not get back up on the bike. And so I had a lot of falling down moments as an entrepreneur where I would be so hard on myself. But what I realized is that like the consistency of getting back up and moving forward and getting back up and moving forward, A, whatever I stepped into next was always 9 million times greater than what I may have been trying to hold on to in the past. And two, I knew so much more when I got back up that helped me to do better and scale the business to a better space than I would have had I not fallen off in the first place. So I think one of the greatest mistakes I ever made was being so hard on myself in those fall down moments. And and that's why I have a trigger to the word failure, because it's like, what is failure exactly? It's just an opportunity to get back up. And so, um, so yeah, I think that would be, you know, what I've learned the most is go easy on yourself in those, in those start over moments, because they really are going to take you to a better place and help you to expand in, in knowing your business better. 
So now that you've been in LA, I guess, for how many years is it? So I moved here in 96. So this is my 25th year. 25 years. July 8th will be my 25th anniversary. Oh my gosh. So you've been in LA now for 25 years. You're raising two children in LA. Kind of Mm -hmm. comparing and contrasting your childhood in Oklahoma City or in Norman Kind of what, what are the major differences and like, are, I'm sure there are actually probably some similarities. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, differences first and foremost, I mean, given now my children have been in their bedrooms for almost a year going to school, but when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic, like never did I ever sit in traffic to go to school. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) That's a very different experience. Um, I went to public school. My kids go to private school. So that is, that's also, you know, uh, a, a big difference in, in that experience. And, you know, sadly, you know, my daughter went to public school, actually K through six here in LA at an amazing charter school. My husband and I became founders of this great charter school in our neighborhood. And, and that was such an incredible experience, but it's hard to find very high performing middle schools and high schools, even when you live in, in great neighborhoods. And so a lot of kids end up going to private school here. Um, but, you know, I, and I think, I don't know that this is dramatically different for other parts of the world, but like we had a certain sense of freedom growing up, you know, where we could just get on our bikes and go and be gone all day, and come home when the streetlights came on and, you know, there wasn't that, you know, that part of it kind of breaks my heart a little bit that they're, they don't necessarily have the same freedoms that, that we had. Um, but we chose to live in a neighborhood here in Los Angeles, which is very reminiscent of neighborhoods that I knew back home. And when I first moved here, um, and would just kind of drive around on the weekends before I had any friends and I drove through this neighborhood for the first time when I was like 24 years old. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it looks like the neighborhoods in Norman. It looks like Nichols Hills. Like, what is this? And there were people in the yards and kids riding their bikes on the sidewalk. And I remember saying to myself, um, one day when I, you know, if I decide to get married and have kids here in LA, I want to live in this neighborhood. And that's where we live now. It's a neighborhood called Hancock Park. And, and so we do have like where you'll have the village in, you know, Nichols Hills. Um, we have a, a street called Larchmont and it's our little village. Aww. And so our kids can, you know, walk and get ice cream and bagels. And, you know, there's cute little boutiques and all the teenagers like to loiter around there on Friday and Saturday nights. So that part of it is similar um, that, you know, I'm happy for, for where we live, that they get to have that experience. And, you know, I didn't get to grow up by the beach either. So yeah, getting to go to the beach is yeah. like, <laughs> Neither yeah, wait. Like the beach at Lake Hefner doesn't count. The beach at Lake Hefner. Yeah, I do you, love Lake Hefner. Yeah, I love all the Oklahoma lakes. But um, so yeah, your it's brother, Nikhil, your brother still lives here, right? He yeah, lives he Norman? lives in Tulsa. Or he lives so, in Tulsa. Yeah, so he moved. Um, he was living in Norman. Um, after my father passed away, him and his um family moved into my parents' old house. Um, not the house I grew up in. My parents had had moved into another house after I'd left LA. Um, or for LA. Um, but he was living there. And then just this year moved moved to Tulsa. Tulsa. So I had to come home to Oklahoma in October. And it was the first time that I flew to Tulsa instead of Oklahoma city. I'd never been to the Tulsa airport. I don't think I, I've never been to the Tulsa airport. That's so funny. 
it was so surreal. And then like not knowing my way around town. And I'm like, of course, immediately, like two days in, I like rented a car and drove to Oklahoma City. I was like, this is weird. How am I not in Oklahoma City or Norman right now when I'm back in Oklahoma? But but he loves it. Tulsa's beautiful, by it's the way. Beautiful. Like, it's, I had been, you know, quite a few times when I was younger and had gone back for a couple weddings, but I'd never actually like spent a significant amount of time in Tulsa and it's absolutely beautiful. The hills and the architecture. So he's happy. He, he, he wanted to change. So, so I know you've done now. such a good job. I feel like still connecting your children to Oklahoma and mm-hmm. to Norman. I know you bring them back to visit a lot, but now that your mom's not here and your brother's not here, I hope that you'll still come back to visit I know, us. I know. You have so I many know. friends yeah, here we- from school and you're, you're so good at keeping in touch with people. I really, I mean, and really, even though we only met, what, five or six years ago, seven years ago, I still feel like you're my best friend. I'm like, you make every single person that you're friends with feel like you've known them forever. And it's such a gift that you have to, you're able to sort of bring these, all these different people from all different walks of life and backgrounds into your fold and make everyone feel like they're the most special person in the room. And really, I mean, it's a gift that you. you have. I, I do want to talk about so 13 Loon. Oh, right. Yes. Mm. Because I, obviously this year, I feel like especially in the community has been so important. And so I want to talk about like what the mission is, how people mm-hmm. like, I, I want to talk all things 13 Loon just for a minute. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, you know, Nikeo, um, in 2017, um, Nikeo was acquired by Unilever Brands. Um, and now Nikeo lives at Target and is actually launching into, it's been at Target.com since before COVID and then um, launch, launches in stores in two weeks into Target stores. So that's very, very exciting. Is it going to come to the but Oklahoma in, City one? We need, we need to go we'll go buy it all up. Yeah, well, yes, I, try, to see I tried to order my sweet almond cleansing balm and they oh, yeah, all it's sold out. out. Gosh. I'm like, yeah, it's come on. Out like crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. I think it might be back in stock today, but it will definitely be in stores and I'll have to see where, hopefully it's in Oklahoma. I haven't checked. It's going into about 350 Target. Is so it really? Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank that, you. Thank you. To go back to the beauty just for like one second before we move on to 13 Loon, I had never used face oil until I used your restore, the one in the green, the green or, bottle. Yeah, the green bottle. Yeah, the green bottle. Oh, yeah. Because, and that was what, five years ago? When I you came say. to Oklahoma City uh-huh. to do the trunk show. And that I was think the because, first time I'd ever used it. Yeah. Oil. And so I guess to my point is like, I think that you were sort of the first or one of the first in my mind who like, who really said face oil needs to be a part of your routine. And I know mm-hmm. that now that seems so silly because everybody uses it. But back right, then, right. I feel like people were like, wait, is it going to make your skin oily? Like all those questions right. I'm sure you heard for years and years. But um, especially in Oklahoma City, I remember being like, this is this is new and different and exciting. So, and it was clean. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And it was clean. It is clean. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And, and it's just, you know, that is like going back to my grandfather. It's like all I ever knew was that our skin's made up of oils. And so it understands oil more than any other base of product um, and knows what to do. And for people who are worried that oil is going to congest your skin or cause you to break out because you have oily skin, I say that you need oil more than somebody that somebody who maybe has dry skin because your skin's working too hard to produce the oils, which is giving you oily skin. So you give oil back to it to balance it out. And then obviously if you have 
dry skin, your skin just drinks it up as right, well. So, right. which makes so, yeah, so much it's sense. great. Yeah. Well, yeah, so no, it's one of the biggest anti-aging um, tricks is to just keep that skin hydrated. Well, whatever um, you're doing, I that. will do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your skin is you insanely do. beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Thank so, you. Thir- yeah, yeah. So 13 loon. Let's talk about it. Yeah. 13 loon. So, so this past summer, so 2020 hit, which was rocked all of our worlds. Mm-hmm. And not only were we dealing with the global pandemic of COVID-19, we are also dealing with the um, pinnacle moment of Black Lives Matter and the pandemic of systemic racism. And so at that time in the summer of 2020, I noticed that Nikeo Beauty and Nikeo Me, the person, were showing up on a lot of the like top 20 Black-owned or Black-founded brands to shop. And, and while it was conflicting to get all of this attention. You know, my sales were going up at Target and that was beautiful and and wonderful. It was also as a result of, you know, the heartbreaking madness that we were experiencing. And so, you know, a couple things happened. One, I noticed that when I would try to support um, these other brands, that it was taking me to like 20 different sites in order to shop one list. Like, why is it that there's so few of us in all of these larger beauty retailers where as a black woman, my whole life, I've been buying products by people who are not black or brown with the expectation and the assumption that they work on my skin and they work on my hair. And I do the same thing. Like I've had Nikeo for 18 years and a lot of my customers are not black or brown and I make products for everyone. And of course I'm my test market. It has to work on me, but this is just a weird disconnect, right? Because I was also getting a lot of, because of that attention, from people who were not black or brown asking, can I use this? Does this work on my skin? And so I thought, gosh, there really needs to be some real education and changing of the narration in the beauty industry. If people are asking me this, that means they're asking everyone this. And two, I also noticed when I was seeing, you know, all of these lists coming around through different outlets that there were so many brands that I'd never heard of. And I'm a black female founder. How have I never heard of half of these brands? And so you know, my partner and I, um, his name is Patrick Kerning, and he created 11 on Array, which is an inclusive sizing. He was the one who kind of got all these couture designers to start making clothing size 14 plus. Um, we both preach inclusivity. We decided, you know, here's the thing. The fashion and beauty industry have a real chance and a real opportunity to create unity, unity in a way that this country so desperately needs And these black and brown founders and people of color founders who create products for people of all colors need to be able to be celebrated, amplified, and supported. And so that is how 13 Loon was born. I wanted to create an online platform where I could, you know, at the core of our business, celebrate these incredible brands made by black and brown founders like myself and um, help to really give them the stage and the spotlight to share their stories in incredible ways. And in hoping so that the attention will garner more funding because we are still completely underfunded, um, more retail space and larger retailers as well, because we make great stuff and we deserve that shelf space, but also the opportunity for people of all colors to shop our site and be a part of the mission, which is helping to build generational wealth in our communities so that we can help to alleviate systemic racism and level the playing field. And so it will be a completely inclusive site, meaning we will be launching brands that we call ally brands by, by founders who are not black or brown, but people who have long 
thought about us and their formulations, as well as more black and brown founders will always be at the core of our business. And so, you know, it was something that I was really excited to do. It's something like going back to the key learnings of being an entrepreneur and being in the beauty space and knowing that a lot of the no's that I got, especially in the ways of funding, were not because I didn't have a proven concept, like Nikeo's 18 years old. And even if it's had stops and starts, like I'm still here and it's still thriving and and it shouldn't have taken 18 years to get to my dream retailer. Like, how could we do things differently? And so I'm just hoping that I can use my experience and and create an opportunity that these founders can get to success even quicker. And and it's so fun. And the site is so beautiful. And the products are incredible. And we just closed our first. We started raising at the, at right after Thanksgiving and closed our friends and family round and raised over a million dollars by Christmas and wow. have some incredible investors like Gwyneth Paltrow, who's been a real mentor to me in this 13 loom journey with having a contextual commerce platform and Greg Renfrew who created beauty counter and Sean Puffy Combs, like this amazing um, cap table that I'm really excited about and just really strong entrepreneurs in the space and excited to see where we go. And we just started our seed round. So hopefully that will close quickly and we can just get to, have, you know, bringing some other great brands on. How much are you looking to raise? Is that public information? Um, uh, you know, I think so. If I mean, somebody yeah, we're wanting to, to raise invest. Raise. How could they get to? Yeah. You? So, so, so our first round, we um, were oversubscribed for our million dollar raise, and then we're looking to raise around two million to close this seed round. This is really exciting. So, that is, yeah, yeah I'm like, I'm, it kind of gives me chills. I know. I, I really. Aww. Thank I'm you. so we'll have to do like a 13 loon Greta Sloan pop Greta up. Sloan pop up. I really and yeah, and the where you can take this even beyond beauty. I mean, because I'm thinking about mm-hmm. what other industries are aggregating all of this information and celebrating black and brown brands like this. I mean, I think the fashion mm-hmm. industry has done a little bit with their 15 percent pledge, and I think there's, but this is really exciting. I mean, I'm, right, right, yeah, no, it is. It's really exciting, and there's so many incredible talented founders of people of all colors, you know, like right now I'm like really hoping that I can find like some cool brands by indigenous, you know, mm-hmm. native Americans. I'm, I'm looking for brands from, you know, some, looking at some great Asian brands that we're bringing on South Asian brands that we're bringing on. And it's so fun because it's like, you know, it's beyond multicultural, right? Like it's, it's polycultural. That's we are all one. Right. right. And, and we have to be able to celebrate each other's wins each other's differences, know that, you know, so much, especially in the beauty space is steeped in culture that's borrowed across all brands, right? And so why not give the opportunity to hear the authentic story from from people who are, you know, this is their story, and this is their ancestors stories and, and allow them to share those beauty secrets as well. So it's all really, really exciting. And we've built an incredible team, you know, the entire company was created on zoom. Um, our head buyer came from Net-A-Porte. I've never been in the same room with her, but I'm on Zoom with her 10,000 hours a day. <laughs> oh you know, gosh, so I love that so it's, much. It's, um, it's a new time. Yeah, it sounds like I'm you've excited. got, like <laughs> you're saying, Gwyneth, Sean Puffy Combs, Net-A-Porte. <laughs> I'm like, how is it? This is like the the probably the it's best the brand I've ever heard of. of. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, thank you. Well, that's so thank exciting. you. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I know that you it's did really a, a lot of work along the way to get here. You right. didn't just show up in this space and decide this was a good idea. You have created 
a network of friends and mentors along the way that really have allowed you to do this. And it's almost like you're bringing together all of your skills into one place because your skills really extend beyond beauty. I mean, you're really. Thank you. Well, a lot of those supporters came from Oklahoma. So and still do. So I'm just I'm so grateful. Yeah. So. Our, we have like two kind of last questions. So our mm-hmm. first one is, you know, 10 years from now, where do you see Nikeo Beauty? Where do you see yourself? Where do you see 13 Loom? Like kind of if you can give yourself a little peek into the future, what what do you think you're going to see? Hmm. I mean, I really, um, you know, for, for Nikeo Beauty, um, I, I see Nikeo Beauty thriving as a target brand as well as a global beauty brand, which was always the intention and still really working to help better the lives of young girls, both here in this country, as well as on the continent of Africa. And for 13 Loon, I see it as being the number one destination for polycultural beauty, um, celebrating people of all colors while highlighting those that are of black and brown descent at the core of the business. And you know, not only curating our own brands that we bring by other founders, but creating brands under our 13 Moon umbrella. Um, And two, also, you know, giving back in ways that are helping to build generational wealth in communities around this country and around the world and hoping to be catalysts for change to helping to level the playing field and, and helping that next generation of beauty founders that look like me know that they can do this too and really, you know, hopefully launching their brands um, 10 years from now. That's my, that's my hope. Do you have a personal 10 year kind of sneak peek? So interesting. You know, this time of the global pandemic has been, you know, really interesting to think about, like, where do we want to be? Like, I love Los Angeles and I love living in California, but like, do I see myself here? You know, I have, I have kids that are five years apart. So I'm in a really interesting predicament where I have one 10th grader and one or ninth grader is going to be in 10th grade. And then I have a fourth grader. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like the world is our oyster. There's been a mass exodus of people leaving Los Angeles and going to Austin, Texas, like Dallas, knows, maybe we like get on that the, yeah. Dallas and Nashville. And I don't know. Maybe you should know. start the maybe. Oklahoma city trend with the California. I mean, I, I tried that a couple of years ago. I've been ago. begging I was you. like, get my kids into Cassidy. We're moving. <laughs> Love it. It's happening. I was like, forget this. LA's crazy. And then, you know, it just always if, affects us right back in. If but, you convince Gwyneth yeah. to come to Oklahoma city, I think Catherine and I would be eternally <laughs> grateful. <laughs> Gosh, I bet she would love it. I actually bet she would too. We could take her to some cool spots. Well, that's the thing too. So kind of one of the things we wanted to highlight with this podcast that yes, the Oklahoma city and Norman and I mean, all of, uh, all of Oklahoma really that existed 10 years ago is much different now, but so different. So kind of our final question is sort of about that. If Catherine, if you wanted, well, I was, I was trying to figure out how to, how to morph this question into sort of an Oklahoma city slash LA question, but where do you love to go when you come to Oklahoma City. And if you brought a friend from LA, if you said, I'm going to go show you where I grow up, it doesn't have to be Oklahoma City, it can be Norman. Where do you love to go? Mm-hmm. What's your first stop? Yeah, like you're going to you bring land, your best friend will, from LA yeah. who's not from here. Yes. When you land, yes. where do you go? Yeah. How do you spend your day? Um, so when I land, um, when I would go to Norman, um, 
if somebody was coming with me, I would immediately take them to the Mont for a swirl. That would be like my first stop. Um, And then because I spend a lot more time in Oklahoma City now when I come home, because so many of my friends move from from Norman to the city, I still love to go to Flips and hang out at Flips. But I also, I don't know. I mean, Greta Sloan's on my stops. I always tell everybody that's in Oklahoma City, like, you have to go to Greta Sloan. Um, I love bragging about like the brands that sell there that sell like they have did it and did it just like LA does. Right. Um, um, so (laughs) I love that. I'm obsessed with Pizzeria Gusto. Oh, we had the most fun girls dinner at Pizzeria Gusto. Remember we did like two years ago? Ludivine. I wanted to get married at the Cowboy Hall of Fame and my husband put the squash on that, um, (gasps) when we got engaged, but, um, I think I he might change think his the mind. Cowboy Hall of Fame is, I mean, maybe I'll have my 50th at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. You should. Yeah. It's, we've talked <laughs> bring, about that on Bring this all the LA people to the Cowboy right, Hall of Fame. Cowboy well, they just, they be... built like a whole new outdoor. It's it's yeah. like they've really? renovated. Yeah. Well, it's more, it's meant for children, right. but it's still, they built this cool like, to have an event. Um, there's like different types yeah. of teepees for the different tribes. And then they built like a, I don't want to call it, I know a Pueblo is not the right term, but they've built this like mm-hmm. it it's how that the um they lived in like New Mexico where they right, like, right, right. Pueblo, right? Is that where it's built into the stone? It's I don't know. I, yeah, I like a derby stone. Yeah. I think so. Um, I don't know, but Yeah. That's on. amazing. Okay. So since I couldn't get married in at the Cowboy Hall of Fame and got married in Malibu instead. Um, oh, maybe no. we'll do my 50th at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. I love it. And then you can bring all your LA friends to Oklahoma. And we're yeah. still going to call and it then, the Cowboy Hall of And then, of course, Hall the of football fame. stadium. Oh, the, I mean, going to stadium. an OU game, hands down. And a Thunder game, which came along after I left LA or for LA. But Isn't it um, wild? I mean, yeah, going. Have you been to a Thunder game? Many. Yeah. Yes. Isn't it I crazy? Because every Christmas. I went to. I went to a Clippers game, not a uh, Lakers game when I lived in LA, but nobody was cheering. And here people freak out. They're like, yeah. 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 No, I love, my kids love Thunder games when we come home. Usually it's Christmas time at Thunder games. Are they Thunder fans? I mean, are they OU fans and Thunder fans? Well, yes, they are are definitely Thunder fans. Um, my husband played football at the University of oh, Alabama, so we have one and one. My daughter is a senior fan, and my son is a full tied Alabama fan, and it breaks my heart. I mean, I love Alabama when they're not playing OU, but it's real tough when it's OU Alabama. It's hard to beat Bama football, too, because they always they win. Always win. So I know. I know. Except twice. Yeah. OU has won. That's true. That's true. It. And let me tell you, it was the greatest days of my life. <laughs> uh, but yes, my husband, by the way, just screamed the whole time. The whole time. Oh my gosh. Well, so tell everybody where they can find you, your brands, like how yes. people follow. Yeah, so you can find um, Nikeo um, on Instagram and Facebook at Nikeo Beauty, N-Y-A-K-I-O Beauty, and then follow us as well at 13 Loon, and it's 13 spelled out in Loon, L-U-N-E. Yay. Well, thank you. Like, seriously, I, I appreciate can't. you doing this so much. Oh, my gosh. I thank you. you I still all. want you to move I'm so back. excited. I know. I'm going to go listen to some other episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, we're it's been a, fun. a blast. I think that a lot of our guests having – 
in common is that they're the first to do things kind of like how you're the first in a lot of ways. So I think that Mm. you will find that thread kind of woven through our whole podcast. I think you're right. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, thank you all. This is such a perfect way to start my Monday morning. Good. Well, good luck. Have a great week. Give the kids a hug you. We'll see you soon. We will. Thanks, dear. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listening to these stories. You can find us on Instagram at ActionCityOKC or for business inquiries, email us at hello at ActionCityOKC.com. Action City is produced by Blacken Studios. You can find the studio on Instagram and Facebook at Blacken Studios. Creative services provided by Ranger Creative, music written and performed by Kansas City Bankroll.